0: Good morning it's good to be with you again. Hope you're gathered here with a, sort of a level of anticipation as we once again uh, just want to spend time in the Word of God uh, to do that, I would encourage you uh, open your Bibles with me to first Thessalonians chapter five and the old saying goes it's it's not the end, but you can see it from here uh, you know as we come to this passage, I think Paul's already sort of He's pretty much said everything he's wanted to say when he sat down to write this letter to the church. He's got all of his sort of boxes checked. All of his major points have been expressed uh, as he comes to this. But this is Paul we're talking about. So even in the short sort of concluding sort of thoughts, uh, it's still gonna take us a couple weeks just to unpack uh, everything he has to say. Because he says a lot, uh, even though he's mostly done. And in fact, I've, I've sort of given you this analogy before, but if you kind of really want to understand what's going on in these closing verses of this letter, the best image I can give you is that of a parent who, who you know, and you're leaving your kids alone because you're going, maybe going away on a trip. And even though you know that your kids are ready for the responsibility and even though, you know, you've already said and you've already taught them everything, they need to hear to get this job done. As a parent, when you're walking out that door, there's just something inside of you that just, you need to say it one more time, you know. And it usually sort of, it comes out of this sort of long string of sort of loosely connected advice. So, you know, yes, uh, make sure you go to bed on time, and there's suppers in the freezers, and there's a number on, you know, on the fridge where you can read us, and remember, don't talk to strangers, that was that so was important, and you can, you can watch TV, but only after you've done your homework, and you can have friends over, but no big parties, and make sure you wear clean underwear while we're gone, and you know, and you just, it's just one thing after another, that kind of stuff, and chances are your kids are just listening to that, and they're just rolling their eyes and going like, leave, we know, like, you've taught us. But as a parent, you can't help yourself but sort of try to say it one more time. And that's really where Paul is, I think, as he's concluding his thoughts in this letter with these final words. He's, this, he's, a, he's the spiritual father saying goodbye to his children, knowing that they now have to sort of do life all on their own without him there. So these closing words are this sort of list of advice that, you know, he's trying to say to his kids before he says goodbye. And We're not going to finish off the letter today, but we're going to tackle sort of the first section of of this closing advice Paul writes, found in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 to 15. And he says there, beginning of verse 12, We ask you, brothers, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace amongst yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Let's pray together. Father God, again we come to open your word and we ask That, Lord, you would be our teacher, you would be our guide, you would send your Holy Spirit to be among us uh, just to uh, help us truly understand and apply this truth uh, to our lives. And this is a big one because it has to do with peace in the church. And, and Lord, uh, yeah, sadly, sometimes the biggest obstacle to peace is ourselves and our own attitude. So I pray that, Lord, you would just allow the Holy Spirit to check our spirit, to speak to us, uh, even difficult things. Uh, Lord, as we look through this word. And Lord, pray that you would be glorified. Pray that you would be greatly lifted up. And pray, Lord, that, that Lord, as a church, this would be one step closer to us continuing to live at peace with one another. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever heard about the boy uh, who was once asked, Why are fire engines red? And his answer was this. He said, Fire engines are red because they have eight wheels and four people on them, and four plus eight equals twelve, and twelve, there's twelve inches in a foot, and one foot is a ruler, and Queen Elizabeth was a ruler, and Queen Elizabeth was also a ship, and the ship sailed on the seas, and the seas are full of fish, and fish have fins, and the fins were people who once fought with the Russians, and Russians are red, and fire trucks are always Russian around, so that's probably why fire trucks are red. And it's hard to argue with that logic, I guess, but as we come to our passage, I get the sense that the Apostle Paul, he has a little bit of little boy left in him. Uh, Because there's times when Paul is writing, especially at the end of his letters, that it just seems, he's this momentum behind him, and there's just, he just seems to start writing faster and faster, one thought after another, until you're almost overwhelmed uh, with what he's doing. Um, just the sheer volume of words coming your way. And in fact, someone did a little bit of math, found that in the final 16 verses of this letter that Paul writes to the Thessalonians, there's no less than 21 different commands he wants them to remember. Uh, here's just a few of them. Uh, respect those who labor, be at peace, admonish the idle. encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient, don't repay evil, always seek to do good, rejoice, pray, give thanks, don't quench, don't despise, test everything, hold fast, abstain from evil, greet each other, kiss each other, and read this letter again, and, and then just like pray, he says pray again. It's just, it's a lot to take in. It's like, Paul, slow down. And I actually decided pretty early in the week that I wasn't going to preach a 21-point sermon. So uh, thankfully we can break up these concluding thoughts just a little bit. Uh, And they do sort of form nice units. And verses 12 to 15 kind of have a common theme. Uh, They have a common purpose as Paul writes these words. And that purpose was really to help a church, this church, live at peace with one another. So, you know, if, if, again, that analogy, if Paul is the parent standing at the door saying goodbye to his kids, this is the parent saying, get along, like, don't fight while I'm gone. Be at peace. Because I think that Paul knew that even though the church faces very real danger from the outside, you know, through things like persecution and through trials of those, you know, who hate Christ and hate the church and they attack the church. And to be clear, the church in Thessalonica that was a very real and present danger to them. They, they were being persecuted. There was a great danger in being part of the church. But Paul also knew that there was also a great danger for the church that comes from within. And that's perhaps even more damaging to the health of the church as Christians lose fellowship and begin to fight amongst themselves. And the reality is that churches do fight. Um, you know, and often, <laughs> you don't have to be around church very long to realize that sometimes churches argue about even the silliest of things. You know, churches have split over the color of the carpets to put in the sanctuary, whether or not women can wear pants, what version of the Bible to use, what kind of coffee uh, that you're supposed to be serving in the foyer. Um, For myself, I actually, in one of my churches, one of the biggest fights I had, not I, it wasn't, you know, but one of the disagreements was what kind of bread to use for communion. It became an issue. I had no idea growing up that this would even be a thing, but people got heated over it. But that's precisely what Paul is trying to avoid happening in his churches as he writes these words because he wants churches to get along. He wants us to live in peace, to be unified in love. So he gives them these these final instructions. And as the verses unfold, there's sort of a fairly simple outline of what he writes that we can follow. Because to live at peace, Paul talks about three things. First, he talks about how people should relate to their pastors and their leaders Second, how pastors and leaders should relate to their people. And then third, just how people just generally should be relating to one another. And it begins with how people of the church should relate to their pastors and their leaders. As he says in verse 12, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly because of their work And be at peace among yourselves. And you know, I would agree with what John MacArthur writes about these verses when he says, nothing is more devastating to the spiritual progress of a church than an unwholesome relationship between the shepherds and the sheep. You can't have a healthy flock with that kind of a problem. If shepherds are not fulfilling their proper spiritual responsibility to the sheep and the sheep are not fulfilling their proper spiritual responsibility to the shepherd, the church can never be what God intends it to be. And then he says, And frankly, devastation of a massive proportion occurs in churches where there is a breakdown of confidence, trust, love, affection between shepherds and the sheep. And again, I think he's right about that. So how do we keep You know that relationship from breaking down. Well, look at Paul's advice, as he says in verse twelve, that people are to respect those who labor over you and uh, among you and over you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Respect, and you know this is actually one of those verses that's probably saying more than you think it is when you first read it. And some translations say honor them instead of respect, and that's a fair translation, but. Paul's not saying here that, that church leaders or pastors, we, that we deserve that respect just because of our position. Just because we're in this role. It, it's much deeper than that. In fact, the word that Paul uses for respect in this verse can actually be translated as no. Uh, in fact, the King James still reads that way. The King James says, We beseech you, brethren, to know them who labor among you. And what Paul's saying here is, Pastors deserve respect because they're known by the church. Just as the shepherd is to know his sheep, the sheep need to know their shepherd. And as a pastor, I can tell you that that, that's important to me, what Paul is saying here. You know, as a pastor, I don't want to be put on a pedestal. But I don't want to be a doormat for someone either. I I just want to be me. And I want to be honest about who I am as a pastor in the ministry. And I want people to understand, I'm just a man. I'm a person. I have struggles. I carry burdens. I make mistakes. And I I have just as much challenge living a Christian life as anyone else. I have a family. Sometimes I get mad at my kids. No comment Uh, up there. Uh, Sometimes I fail to pray or read my Bible. Or sometimes I even fail to trust God first when problems come my way. But I do keep persevering. And I do keep trying to live a life of integrity. And that's how I'd like people to think of me. And a great gift, you have to hear this, a great gift that you can give to your pastor is to know him and know that he's just a person but love him anyways. And just as an side here, I, I really do feel loved by this church. This is not a rebuke to you. It's, it's a way to go team. I wanna thank you again just for all the encouragement and appreciation that you continue to show to me and to my family. You're doing a good job of what Paul is telling you to do here. Uh, even as he continues in verse 13. He adds, and to esteem them, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And honestly, kind of hard to preach on this without feeling a little self-serving. But, um, because Paul basically, he's, he's inventing a new word in this, in this passage that means abundance to the of point of being excessive. Paul's saying, be overflowing in your esteem. Be, be surpassing. Be super abundantly esteeming your leaders. And his point is, do it even more than you think is necessary. Go overboard, is his point. And yet, I think sometimes we do the opposite. And I'm guilty as this is anyone. You know, as one pastor says, I've had so many people try to temper their encouragement because they're fearful that if they say something too positive, it might go to my head. And you know, I've, I've actually been there. I remember at one of my previous churches, uh, you know, we candidated there to, to, and there was a vote to call us to, to be their pastor. And it was almost unanimous. There was only one vote against me in the, in the whole church. Well, some months later, a, a fellow in the church came up and he admitted he was that dissenting vote. But he said to me, I would have voted for you. But I just wanted to try to keep you humble because I didn't think any pastor should think they have 100% support. I was like, wow, that's super. That is... (laughs) Paul. What Paul is saying is don't hold back when it comes to supporting and encouraging and even thinking about your pastors and leaders. Because leading a church is hard work. And this is another lesson here. Because, you know, Paul even in in verse 12... uh, he calls this, the work the pastor called it, he calls it labor. And that word was actually used to describe the kind of work that left the person exhausted with just deep weariness. In some contexts, it was even used to describe someone who had endured a beating. Now, to be honest, there's not a lot of days as a pastor that leaves me sort of feeling in a pool of sweat, like, oh, like physically exhausted with aching muscles. But there are times I think every pastor will tell you that when they feel a little bit beat up. Um, even in good churches, ministry can be a tough job. Because I just want to listen, listen to some statistics about how ministry can take its toll. 33% of pastors already say they feel burned out within the first five years of their ministry. 50% feel unable to meet the needs of the job. of pastors say they believe that being in ministry is hazardous to their family's well-being and health. 57% of pastors would leave the pastorate if they had some other vocation that they felt they could do. 70% of pastors say they don't have any close friends. 7% also say that they feel their self-esteem is lower now than it was when they entered ministry. 75% 75% report severe stress causing anguish, worry, bewilderment, anger, depression, fear, and alienation in their job. 80% of pastors say they have an insufficient time with their spouse. And this one maybe is most shocking of all 80% of pastors serving today will no longer be in ministry in 10 years. That's the reality of ministry today. And I know, just personally, of my graduating class in seminary, I only know two guys who are still in ministry, serving a church today. And Paul's just reminding us here that an abundance of encouragement would actually go a long way in the lives of many pastors as we appreciate just the burden of the calling that God has put upon their lives. Which brings us to the final part of verse 13, where Paul says, be at peace among yourselves. And this is still sort of being written under the topic of relating to your pastor. Because, you know what, there are few things that tear up a pastor's heart more than when the members of a congregation are fighting among themselves. You know, as a father, nothing breaks my heart more than when my kids are fighting with each other. It just hurts. And as a pastor, I feel the same way for my church. If you want to bless your pastor, don't fight. Be at peace with one another. Well, that's, that's what Paul is telling us on how to relate to the pastor, which brings us to the next section of Paul's advice as he moves from sort of people relating to the pastors and the leadership of the church to, to pastors and leaders relating to their people. And the advice that he gives in the next few years says, sounds general, like it's, this is good stuff for everybody. You don't have to be a leader in order to take this advice, but it's probably addressed to leaders uh, who would be most likely the ones who would put this advice into practice and he says that, this advice found in verse 14. And he says, And we urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. Now, in ministry, you, you meet all kinds of people in all kinds of circumstances. And Paul here gives us advice in this verse for dealing with three of those kinds of people, um, all of whom are sort of in a different condition spiritually. So he talks about the idle, he talks about the faint-hearted, and he talks about the weak. And first he talks about admonishing the idle. And the idle, the idle there, the word doesn't mean lazy, it actually was a term that meant out of line. Um, the NASB says, translated as unruly. Uh, it was used to describe a soldier uh, if they were out of formation or if they were walking along and they were out of step uh, with the rest of, of the soldiers. So for a church, this is a person who's, who's just, they're really just, they're not on the same page as the rest of the people. Because they want something to be different from the way it is. And maybe they even dig in their heels when it comes to an issue in the church. So what's the response to those people who don't see eye to eye with others in the church? Well, Paul says admonish them. And the word there actually means literally to, to put into the mind. Today we might say, go, go try and talk some sense into this. Uh, That's the idea here. We have to, our job is to go and have a conversation with that person, to try to help them to understand why things are the way they are and help them see the truth behind the decisions that have been made. Help them to appreciate what the church is trying to do. And that make very clear, this is not a my way or the highway approach. This is really a loving, honest explanation and invitation to those people who are out of line to join the rest of the group. You know, we want you to be part of what we're doing and trying to figure out a way to get everybody on the same page. That's admonishing the idol. And then next we are to encourage the faint-hearted. And the faint-hearted are a group of people who are, who are basically, they're discouraged. Uh, maybe they're overwhelmed by stress or, or burdened with worry. And Paul says to this group, we should encourage them. We, we come alongside them and lend them some of our strength and help them to you know, find courage to face the trials that are before them. And then finally, we're told to help the weak. And it's this last group of people who are probably the, the most hard up because the word there meant, I mean, it, these are not just people who are a little out of line and they're not just a little bit discouraged. The word here implies these are people who are, who are done. They, they have nothing left to give. People who are completely out of gas, ready to give up. Exhausted, burned out, wrung out, worn out. And often these people in the church are the most easily to overlook because they're not even showing up anymore. And Paul's advice here is to help them. And that word literally means cling. Cling to a person. Hold them fast. I mean, if encouragement is saying, we can do this together, Helping someone is saying, I got you. It's throwing them a lifeline. It's, it's caring for that person in a way that they're no longer even able to care for themselves. To help the weak, is, is re- it's a rescue mission. In fact, if you want to think of these three groups of people that Paul describes here, the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak, think of them like this. Imagine you're going to a beach, and you're the, the, the swimming instructor, and your job is to teach people how to swim. Well, the idle would be the ones who are on the shore and refuse to get into the water. And as a job, your job is to to go and talk to them and and help them understand why it's important to go and join the group in the water. And the faint-hearted, they are in the water, but they're staying very close to the shore because they're worried about going any deeper. And to them, your job is to say, you know what, we can do it. You have it in you to swim. Why don't we go and do it together? And for the weak, well, they're ones who've already been swept out into sea. And they're already drowning. And the job there is to let them know, I am coming after you. And then head out into the wind and the waves and try to bring them back. And that's how pastors and leaders, and really all people really, can respond to the needs of the people around them in the church. We admonish the idle, we encourage the faint-hearted, and we help the weak. And then Paul adds these words at the end of verse 14, that we are to be patient with them all. And again, that's not just good advice to to just pastors and leaders, but for all people. As we relate to each other, as we relate to anyone, really, we should be patient with people. Because, you know, I've learned probably more and more over my years, people are complicated. And, you know, they can be surly at times and frustrating at other times, but, you know, if you deal with people on a personal level for even a little while, you learn that generally when people are like that, like surly and grumpy and just... There's usually a reason. And that reason is that people carry around a lot of pain. And there's a lot of hurts. And often there's a lot of trauma in their lives. Stuff that you probably don't even know about what's going on in their lives. They're carrying that wisdom all the time. And until those people find healing for those things in Christ, they often will just project that stuff onto others and onto you. And if we if we respond in kind to that, if they're being surly and we just be surly right back or we're short-tempered, we often just push people away. And there's times when if we do that, we may not even realize the damage that we're doing to the people around us. Whether it's a harshly spoken word or an improper attitude or a spirit of indifference, even small things done in impatience can hurt others. That's why patience is so important with everyone that we meet. Because again, you don't know what people are going through. So do your best to treat them just gently and patiently. And then Paul continues that thought as he concludes our passage in verse 15. As he says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And as you read that, I just... Just think about how radical a thought this must have been to Paul's readers. You know, in fact, it's still a radical thought here today because you know, the world around us, it kind of runs on this, the idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You hurt me, I'm gonna hurt you. We, you know, we demand our rights and we hold grudges and we want revenge against those who hurt us. And yet for peace and unity to live in our churches, we need to be willing to let go When it comes to getting along, some of the best advice I can give you, some of the best advice you're ever going to get is to to let go of the anger that you feel towards that other person when they've wronged you and replace it with forgiveness and love. And instead of seeking revenge, seek actually to do good to that person. Do good to others and, and find a way to bless them. And that seems totally crazy. But that's exactly what Jesus says. Matthew 5, verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard it that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So if there's two sides to every fight and every conflict, Paul's telling us it's our job to be the one who lays their weapons down. Lay down your hate, lay down your anger, lay down your desire for revenge and replace it with love for that other person. That's how we can have right relationships with one another. And again, in a nutshell, that's how we get along with each other. This is how we live at peace as a church. With people rightly relating to their pastors, and pastors rightly relating to their people, and people just rightly relating to each other. And because this is just, I think it's an important subject uh, that hits home in many of our lives, I'm just going to close with a few pieces of, of advice of my own, just to try to drive home you know, this message in a more practical way before us this morning. Because I want to give you five quick applications on just finding peace with one another as we close. And the first advice I would give you is just be honest about who you are. Be honest with other people about your joys and your pains and your hurts and your hopes and your fears. As a church, we need to learn to be vulnerable so people can know us. You know, many people in church are so used to just faking it, to to putting on a mask and pretending that life is just super and just living a lie. But that's not what fellowship is really about. If you want to be at peace, you got to be honest. And fellowship is about truth, it's about honesty, it's about reality. Let people see the real you. And second, I think as a church we need to be actively, and as Christians, we need to be actively supporting and encouraging each other. You know, in this life, discouragement and hardships come along on a regular basis, it seems, and they take the wind out of our sails. And as a church, our goal should be just to be there for each other, to be able to walk alongside people who are hurting and faint-hearted and help those who need a hand and even rescue those who've lost their way. We should be offering people encouragement, offering them our presence, offering them a listening ear, offering to help, offering to them hope, offering just a smile. I'm reminded of the words of Chuck Swindoll, uh, who said, lack of encouragement is almost an epidemic. Many Christians are dying on the vine for lack of encouragement from other believers. I firmly believe that an individual is never more Christ-like than when full of compassion for those who are down, needy, discouraged, and forgotten. And you know what? One of the greatest ministries that you can have in your life, even today, is just to be able to lift the spirits of your fellow believers who are just discouraged or down. Encourage each other. And then third, third word of advice I have for you is just do all you can to let go of unforgiveness or bitterness or anger in your life against other people. Now, someone once said to live with unforgiveness is to live in a prison of your own making. Holding on to bitterness, holding on to hurts, holding on to a record of wrongs, holding on to anger only burdens the person doing the holding. And it keeps you living in the past and it keeps the pain that you suffered alive. And the person that you're hurting most by doing that is yourself. But forgiveness is freeing. So let go of those things and seek to forgive and forget, not forget, forgive that other person. Which leads to lesson number four, and that is just actively seek peace in your relationships. Now, this is a very similar verse to the one in our passage found in Romans, Romans 12. And part of that passage, Paul says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now the interesting thing about that verse is it implies that peace isn't always possible with others. But the lesson here is that when peace is not possible, make sure you're not the reason that it isn't working. The point here is do your part. And if there's a relationship in your life that's been broken or damaged, be willing to try to make amends. And, you know, I think I would be remiss if I didn't stop for a moment just to ask, is, is there some anger or bitterness you need to let go of in your life? Something that you need to confess? Is there anyone in your life right now that you need to forgive and let go of some old hurts? Because, you know, what? no matter how old the wound or whatever the situation, it is worth it to try to live at peace. And, you know, speaking again of peace, Our final lesson this morning is this. That true peace is only found in Christ. Focus Magazine writes this. It says, We will not be able to live in peace with others until we live in peace with God. We find ourselves enemies of the Creator. We are not at peace. Peace is found in salvation, and salvation is found in the Savior, and the Savior is the one who brings peace. Enemies are reconciled by him, by his blood. There is no peace with God apart from Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace. And that's so important to know because until you know the Prince of Peace, true peace in your life will be nothing more than wishful thinking. Whether that's peace with God or peace with yourself or peace with others, Christ makes the difference in our lives when it comes to finding true peace. And peace is our desire this morning. We want to be a church that gets along. We want to be a church at peace with one another. We want to be built on that foundation of Christ's love for us and for one another. I'm just going to close with a story from some years ago, but uh, it talks about the Special Olympics where there's, you know, thousands of athletes from all over the world gather for this event. And, you know, there's fanfare and there's celebrities and you know, all the music and the excitement is nearly as grand as the regular Olympics. And these are athletes. They, they know what it means to win. They've trained for months and years uh, to compete, and they want victory. Well, an event happened several years ago where five finalists gathered at the starting line for a race, and their hearts were pounding, and each one, again, wanted to win. And the starter's gun went off, and the athletes exploded from their, you know, their crouch positions and began running with all of their hearts. And the crowd was on its feet running and cheering when suddenly one of the runners stumbled and went down hard and fell flat on their face. And he struggled, but he couldn't seem to get up. And a hush fell over the stadium. And then it happened. In the next moment, all of the other racers all stopped running. And they all went, turned back and went to help the fallen runner back to his feet. And then they continued and they crossed the finish line together. And that's such a great picture of what the church is called to be. A church that is there for each other. A church that cares for each other. A church that encourages those who have stumbled. And a church that is patient with those who have fallen behind. And a church that seeks out the best for one another. And that's a church at peace. And that's the kind of church we are called to be. Let's pray together. Father God, we do pray that we would be at peace with one another. And Lord, again, I think I said this, but sometimes we have to admit that the biggest obstacle to peace in our lives is, is often ourselves and our own attitudes and our you know, the way that we treat other people. But Lord, I pray that, Lord, you would help us to be patient, that you help us to be understanding, to know other people, so we can appreciate what they're going through. Help us to be humble. And help us, Lord, even just to surrender so that we can let go of some of that stuff that we're, we're holding on to. Let go of past hurts. And help us to, to forgive. And I pray that in all of this, that Christ himself would be our model. Because, Lord, he truly is our peace. And we could try to do all of this stuff on our own, in our own strength, but, Lord, we know we would fail. It'll only be a matter of time before we're angry and grumpy with other people again. Lord, we need the surrender. We need your strength. We need your spirit to be working in our lives, transforming our hearts to truly find this peace with each other. Because that's where true peace is found. Christ is where we find peace with you. It's where we find peace with one another. And Lord, even it's where we find peace within ourselves as we learn to forgive ourselves and accept your grace. And Lord, I pray that, Lord, as a church, we would be a church that gets along, a church that truly loves one another, a church that encourages one another, that we would be there for each other, and that, Lord, we would be a church at peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.